Election Day 2021 is in the books as we move into a chilly November here in the Capital Region. And we are not the least bit surprised that at minimum one local radio station is already playing 24-7 holiday music. Coming up on this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the top headlines. Where he pitched five uh, no-hit innings, which, you know, puts him in the record books. We'll talk to cult psychology expert and longtime Nexium target Rick Ross about the winding down of the unusual saga of Keith Raniere's purported self-help group. So I would expect Nexium to wither and fall apart. And it's Diwali. Reporter Shrishti Matthew talks about some of the traditions of the Festival of Lights. As it signifies the victory of light over darkness. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. Hi, I'm Casey Seiler, editor of The Times Union. Join us for an ongoing discussion on major developments in the saga of Keith Raniere, co-founder of Nexium, the shadowy upstate New York organization at the center of the explosive federal investigation that resulted in Ranieri's conviction on charges of extortion, sex trafficking, and more. We talk to former members of Nexium, discuss the latest news, and preview the likely next twists in this bizarre and disturbing story. You can find Nexium on trial at timesunion.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. First up, let's go over what appeared this week in the Times Union and on timesunion.com. All right, we're back again with Times Union Editor-in-Chief Casey Seiler. Let's talk about the top headlines this week. And most of those were election news. So (laughs) there were three fairly contentious races in particular that we had kept our eyes on um, after Election Day, and that would be the races for Albany Mayor, for Saratoga Springs Mayor, and the Columbia County Sheriff. So can you give us kind of a summary of how that all shook out? To take them one by one, In the city of Albany, the race, while it may have been contentious, it was not considered to be extremely competitive with Kathy Sheehan, the Democrats. Democrats, as we have discussed on this fine podcast before, having held uh, power in the city now for more than a century, uh, I believe 104 years to be exact. And uh, all of those virtues, that is the very heavy uh, Democratic registration in the city, once again were brought to bear. And Kathy Sheehan seeking her third and what she claims will be final term, although she has said that before, that she would only run for two terms, uh, won with a whopping 64% of the vote. Uh, Alicia Purdy and Greg Adela both notched less than 20%, 18 for Purdy, 17 for Adela. Sheehan is returned with less votes than she garnered in 2017, but of course turnout was down uh, this time around. So uh, a, a third and and final term for Kathy Sheehan is ahead of us. Meanwhile, in Saratoga, which is, of course, a city that, as we've reported extensively, there's a great deal of tension between city officials and uh, activists, uh, including uh, those from the Black Lives Matter movement. 
Ron Kim, the Democrat, was successful over Republican candidate Heidi Owen West, as well as Robin Dalton, who is going to be vacating the position of Commissioner of Public Safety. She's a former Republican who was running on an independent line. She garnered 553 votes, which if you're a Republican, you can say she was the spoiler in the race, because if you were if you were to add together Heidi Owen West's uh, tally with Robin Dalton's, that would have edged out Ron Kim. But uh, if wishes were horses, et cetera, et cetera, Democrats are going to take over many other seats previously held by Republicans. Uh, and that includes the new public safety commissioner, who notably has said that he will push for an investigation of the death of Daryl Mount. And that is a case that remains shrouded in mystery in part because police and city officials really attempted to sweep under the rug police actions that night, including lying to uh, a reporter in the case of the the chief of police, lied to a reporter at the Saratogian, claiming that there was an internal investigation of the police action that night when in fact there was none. So lots of controversy there. Now, moving down to Columbia County, there was more controversy uh, surrounding the sheriff's race. And in that instance, uh, Don Crapp, who uh, ran as an independent, but was backed by local Democratic organizations, defeated the incumbent uh, Republican David Barlett. This is a race that has been uh, marked by controversy surrounding uh, the arrest of several people after the July 4th, 2020 assault on Harold Handy. Uh, Several people, you know, with ties to the department were arrested. There were questions raised about the probity of the sheriff's investigation. It was eventually handed off the investigation to the state police, but there are still a lot of questions around the sheriff's department handling of, of that matter. And that clearly played a role in the in the race. Barlett uh, had been, in his last run, endorsed by a number of labor organizations representing law enforcement officers in Columbia County. This time around, all of those groups sat on their hands, and that obviously uh, hurt him. Well, big changes, it seems, in Saratoga Springs and in Columbia County. All right, let's move on. If you flipped the ballot over on Tuesday, you saw a number of ballot questions, perhaps more than usual. Can we uh, go through what those questions were and how they turned out? The big one, which uh, potentially uh, is going to be the most uh, life-changing, quite literally, for a lot of people, is what was known as the Green Amendment. And that was including in the state constitution a right to clean air, clean water, and a healthful environment. This was backed by uh, Democrats and obviously by many, many environmental groups. This has been a long effort for them and opposed by Republicans and some business groups who said that, you know, it's going to result in more regulation, more onerous regulation, but it passed overwhelmingly, better than two to one, uh, 61% to 27%. But the big surprise of the evening was the defeat of several election-related amendments, three of them that were backed by Democrats, one of which would have tweaked 
the very tangled redistricting process. Republicans claimed that it would have excessively benefited Democrats or whoever was in the majority, while others said this involves a couple of fixes to a system that was first uh, reformed, quote unquote, less than a decade ago and still needs a lot of work. (laughs) So clearly, it obviously still needs a lot of work because the redistricting process is now riven by gridlock as uh, an ostensibly independent state commission uh, tries to finalize its, uh, its redistricting maps for Congress and for state legislative races. It, it gives every indication that it's going to be likely rejected by the legislature, which will then turn around and draw their own maps furiously ahead of uh, the deadline to do so, you know, in preparation for next June's primary. So that went down to defeat by 10 percent. Uh, almost. And then there were two other amendments uh, surrounding elections, one that would have eliminated the requirement that you register to vote 10 days in advance. In other words, it would have cleared the way for same-day registration. And uh, one that would have authorized no excuse absentee ballot voting. Both of those amendments failed by more than 10%. And there is a lot of finger pointing going on right now that, for example, the state Democratic Committee led by Jay Jacobs expended not a penny to back uh, any of these amendments that this was reported by uh, our Josh Solomon from our Capitol Bureau. That is going to lead to more criticism of Jay Jacobs, the, the chair of that committee, who is already reeling from a rather dumb remark that he made and had to apologize for related to uh, whether or not Democrats were obliged to endorse India Walton, who was the winning uh, Democratic candidate out in Buffalo, but she was very controversial. And by the way, she uh, lost in a stunning defeat to uh, incumbent Mayor Byron Brown's uh, write-in campaign. A lot of those ballot questions we have done coverage of leading up to Election Day, and we'll have some postmortem on that. Visit timesunion.com for more. All right. The World Series happened this week, and we had a hometown hero on the winning side. Tell us more. Yeah. Ian Anderson, who, of course, uh, is a a Shen, a Shenandoah graduate, is now a World Series champion at the tender age of 23. It's a remarkable story, and I think highlighted by his Game 6 performance, where he pitched five uh, no-hit innings, which you know puts him in the record books. It's just a great story. And then, of course, on Wednesday night, as it is after every World Series, uh, at uh, Albany International Airport, Mark Singelays, our outstanding sports writer, was there as relics, uh, you know, if baseball is a religion, these are the relics, were flown in and were displayed, including, of course, uh, one of the balls thrown by Ian Anderson in his remarkable performance, as well as uh, bats and other stuff. So it's a great story. And as as my wife said this morning, I already miss baseball. How many many days until spring training? I don't know. (laughs) I know. It's only a matter of months. Don't worry. (laughs) That's very exciting news. All right, before I let you go, uh, one more thing. You recently spoke to uh, cult psychology expert Rick Ross 
uh, about Nexium uh, as we are kind of wrapping up our coverage of this saga that resulted in the sentencing of several key players. So you want to kind of introduce your conversation and then we'll jump right into that uh, segment of that conversation. As you note, we are winding down our very popular Nexium on Trial podcast, um, although I think it's more of a, an aloha than a goodbye, because of course, you never know when there's going to be more Nexium news. And Rick Ross was somebody who is a central figure, uh, a central antagonist to Nexium, I think it's fair to say, going back many, many years. He was uh, targeted by Nexium, which claimed that he had you know, swiped uh, its intellectual property. He was fed into the Nexium litigation machine for many, many years. And in what I think is called a reversal of fortune, ended up testifying at Keith Raniere's uh, 2019 trial, offering expert testimony about how Nexium's structure and its weird, charismatic personality-centric uh, design acted on people and attended to bend them to the will of Keith Ranieri and the other leaders of that organization. And it's, uh, it's always fascinating to talk to him. Absolutely. Now we're going to jump right in. Casey, thanks so much for joining me. We'll check back in with you on Top Headlines next week. But here is a portion of your conversation with Rick Ross. What has kind of struck you? I'm sure you've been following each of the sentencings in this case. We're now done with all of them. What struck you about the way that those sentencing sessions have gone? Well, I think uh, to start out, Claire Bronfman's sentencing was interesting. I mean, basically, she got in front of the judge and said, I, I don't really feel bad about anything. I, uh, I think Keith did a lot of good for me. Um, Nexium was good for me. And because it was good for me, I think it was good. And so the judge took very little pity on her and sentenced her outside of the uh, outside of the boundaries that were recommended by the prosecution. Claire Bronfman will be in prison probably for more than six years, uh, though with her resources, the money that she has from her father, from her trust, she probably will try to get it uh, modified down. And of course, she's in a minimum facility. Uh, which we often call club fed. So even in her incarceration, she's not going to suffer as much as, let's say, uh, Allison Mack, who was sentenced to less time, but probably is in a, maybe a, not such a great facility. Uh, Allison Mack got three years. I, I felt very little sympathy for either Claire Bronfman or Allison Mack. Claire Bronfman, because she was the means by which Keith Ranieri was able to harass so many people, including me. I was sued for 14 years until the lawsuit was finally dismissed before he was arrested. And uh, Claire Bronfman, in my opinion, she certainly was treated fairly in court. Uh, she could have honestly gotten even a longer sentence. Uh, Allison Mack certainly was treated fairly. And I would say that um, I had a great deal of sympathy for Lauren Salzman. I felt that she was brought into Nexium by her mother as really a teenager. Uh, and she was abused and used by Keith Ranieri for years. Her testimony was heartbreaking. 
Uh, Nancy Salzman, I really had very little sympathy for Nancy. I felt that, you know, they found $500,000 in cash in her basement. She had secret files, including a file about me in her basement. Uh, she was uh, very deeply involved in the harassment of people, uh, the exploitation of people. I think Nancy Salzman, in my opinion, was a self-serving, selfish individual who cared little for anyone other than herself, including her own daughter, who she willingly sacrificed on the altar to Keith Raniere. In the end, she would have us believe that she was a pawn, but I think that she was a very willing pawn. And I was disappointed that she will only serve three years. You know, and of course, Keith Raniere, who received 120 years, I have zero, zero sympathy for him. I, I see him as a psychopath, somebody who really has no empathy for anyone other than sympathy for himself, who he constantly portrays as a victim. And uh, my understanding is he is now in a special unit in a Tucson federal prison that provides special protection for people that rape children and are pedophiles. And that's where Ranieri is now. What a terrible, horrible person uh, Keith Ranieri turned out to be. And I can tell you from spending hours and hours with him in court-ordered mediation and in depositions that he is just a disgusting excuse for a human being. That said, there are, of course, you know, many of those who escaped prosecution, you know, that might be termed kind of Nexium dead enders, including Nikki Klein and, and many others, including women who were in, you know, a DOS, the kind of uh, the master slave uh, organization within Nexium that was essentially, you know, set up and run by Renere and Allison Mack. You know, they, of course, are going around attempting to promote the idea that uh, Ranieri and the others, but especially Ranieri, were railroaded. Based on what you've seen of these types of organizations when they do blow up, either from outside pressure or internal uh, rancor, what does the future hold for these people? And what would you say of the prospects, the likelihood that Nexium or something like it will be able to reconstitute itself with Ranieri locked down in Tucson? Well, there have been rumors that there are people in Mexico that are trying to revive Nexium and use the, the same exact uh, script that Nexium used to run its LGATs, its seminars. Uh, so, you know, there, there is that so-called technology out there that uh, Ranieri cobbled together. He copied Scientology, Ayn Rand, Amway, Landmark Education to create what he called his unique intellectual property or philosophy known as rational inquiry. But a ripoff, in other it words. It was a yeah. ripoff, and, and which is ironic, Casey, because he sued me for trade secret violation and intellectual property violation. But at this juncture, I would say there are people that want to revive Nexium. They want to keep it going because they've given their lives to Nexium. I mean, Nikki Klein arguably sacrificed her career, gave everything, I don't know how much money, to Nexium. And then there is one guy 
I can't recall his name, who claims he was cured uh, of Tourette's, who's now suing, suing people for including him in a story or whatever. Suing over, I believe he's suing over the India Oxenberg. Yeah, yeah he's suing uh, the people that put together the documentary Seduced, which, by the way, is an excellent documentary. And I work with India Oxenberg uh, for that. And who knows where he's getting his money from? I mean, that's my question is where is Claire Bronfman still giving money to people who she feels are doing her her bidding that are people still holding the torch for Keith Raniere and Nexium? Uh, I think it's possible that Claire Bronfman is still doing that or her sister, Sarah Bronfman, who was never charged and who's been very low, low key, low profile during all of this. Uh, that is the, the criminal proceedings. So I think there's a desire by people to perpetuate Nexium, whether they have the funds or the ability to do so remains a question. I mean, I think that basically Nexium is, is disintegrating, it's withering, uh, because when a group's leader, uh, a cult that has an absolute totalitarian leader like Ranieri, when that person is imprisoned or they die, Typically, the personality cult that they have created withers and falls apart. So I would expect Nexium to wither and fall apart. Rick Ross, we really appreciate your taking the time. Um, thanks a lot and, and all the best. Thank you, Casey. To hear more of Casey's interview with Rick Ross and more about the Nexium saga, check out our sister podcast, Nexium on Trial. It's available wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can read more about all of the stories and issues that we discuss on this podcast at timesunion.com. After the break, folks around the world are celebrating Diwali this week. We'll talk to reporter Shrishti Matthew about how she's celebrating her first Diwali as a resident of the capital region. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. Every year between mid-October and mid-November, communities of Hindus, Jains, Sikhs, and Buddhists around the world celebrate Diwali. This year, Diwali fell on November 4th, so for many, this week has been a flurry of activities and festivities. Diwali is the festival of lights. It's the biggest holiday of the year in India. While it's celebrated in different ways and for different reasons across the world, many traditional celebrations involve the lighting of special clay lamps called deepas. Times Union reporter Shrishti Matthew is experiencing her first Diwali as a resident of the capital region. And I caught up with her to learn more about her plans to celebrate. Okay, so what is Diwali? What is typically celebrated? Broadly, it is the festival of lights. So we celebrate it by you clean out your entire home. People who renovate their homes have it done by Diwali. And you celebrate new beginnings and prosperity. 
and it comes you know it's like co-joined with um prayers to the goddess of prosperity and wealth so it's significant for many people for that reason and there's different reasons why it's celebrated across the country for me personally in our family my grandmother my mother's mother told me that it was because the hindu god krishna defeated the demon narkasura and that's why we celebrate it but there are other versions where um there was a banished king ram who was an avatar of the hindu god vishnu and when he returned to his kingdom after spending 14 years banished in a, in the forest during which time his wife was kidnapped by a demon and he went out to defeat the demon and by the time he came back people let lamps to welcome him home that's quite a captivating tale right there tell me how do you do it how does your family how do, do it how do we do it so um to begin with there's like a spring cleaning process that takes place and this is like right after the monsoons usually in the rest of india so like you're done with the rains and you know that like that sticky icky bit of weather is gone so it's like you know the onset of winter it's supposed to signify new beginnings you know we're all told to start through our things and put aside things that we'd like to throw away so that's how it begins a week in advance then we shop for new outfits traditionally this is when everyone gets new clothes so i usually get uh, sets of outfits from like my parents will buy me one set and my grandparents will usually pay for another at home we start getting hampers of gifts and we start sending some out ourselves and that's what happens on the days leading up like that is the festive season and then on d day I have a um very considerate next-door neighbor who um bursts firecrackers. Now bursting firecrackers is a part of Diwali except that I stopped doing it in middle school after um uh, one particular class of environmental education when um the teacher succeeded in frightening me to the point of, you know, where I thought that I would personally be responsible for climate change and some sort of apocalypse. <laughs> That's so, a lot of pressure. <laughs> yeah, so I was like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. And the there are two types of firecrackers really. There's one, there's the ones that make noise and there's the ones w- which are like the rockets that cause light, like the ones that you mm-hmm. see on the 4th of July. So I sure. hated the ones that cause noise. So during the day it's the ones that cause noise and during the night it's technically supposed to be the the ones with light but like it's inevitably both. So <laughs> so we start um Diwali uh early in the morning. So you're supposed to wake up early and take like a ceremonial oil bath and then dress in your new clothes. So early varies for everyone. In our house we'd usually um take it to be about 6, but in our neighbor's house it was 4. So at 4 a.m., uh my neighbor had was bathed, dressed, everything and setting off crackers. Let's take this kind of back to the capital region here. Uh what does the local community do? Do they have similar celebrations? So, so now I personally haven't had much of a chance to interact with too many Indians here, but from what I what I plan on doing and what I could see, I plan on going to the temple over on Shekhar Road. and i made a f- attempted rather to make a few sweets at home they taste okay they don't look very great but like i guess that's something um, i'm sure they're delicious hopefully hopefully and i did make um a trip to the indian store to try and put together some sort of goodie bags you know and like right now my only extent of diwali celebrations has been giving my um next door neighbors like a little goodie bag each and then spending an hour trying to explain to them what it was for 
and bell. <laughs> what specifically did you give them? The savory snacks I bought them. It's called what I bought is called matri. It is um, not South Indian because I couldn't find any South Indian snacks in the store, but it is um, North Indian and it is basically wheat flour, chickpea flour, and spices put together and shaped into like flat cookies, which you then fry. Ooh. Yeah, and people eat that with pickle, but I'm not serving it with um, pickle because Indian pickles are too ex- too spicy for the American palate. <laughs> and, uh, and I attempted to make a kalakand, which is essentially thickened milk, but I found a shortcut using ricotta cheese and condensed milk. And to that, I added this, I don't know what to call it in English. Honestly, it's called kyura water in in Hindi, and it's like a flavoring agent. It tastes, it has a flavor similar to rose water. Back to your experience of Diwali, what is your favorite part about it? My favorite part about it is definitely the time around, like right before lunch, when you, when we make phone calls and we speak and like, you know, just reconnecting with people from across the family, from across the world. Then in the evening, we would all, of course, have to light the lamps, and I would love that too. In the evenings, we would go to a party which was thrown by friends of my parents. It was just a lot of fun. It was just people talking. There's a lot of food. And it's just like a very joyful atmosphere. Can you talk more about the lamps yes. and like what the significance of them are? Like I said, there was the story of Ram, the king who was banished. So when he returned to his kingdom, it was Amavasya, which means it was a new moon. So, mm-hmm. because, so because it was dark and like, of course, back then they didn't really have street lamps. I mean, like we're talking... I don't know how many centuries ago. But Mm -hmm. because of that, people lit lamps to welcome him. It's also symbolic because it signifies the victory of light over darkness. So like I was talking to my mother yesterday and she was saying that I know you can't really light lamps in your house, but please try to light at least one, like maybe a candle or something of the sort. Back home, we would do, we sell, they're called diyas and they're clay lamps. Many people use um, ones with wax candles inside them, but traditionally you would use a clay lamp and you mm-hmm. put a cotton wick in that and pour in some oil and then light it. So that was like a whole process. And it was, in hindsight, it was a really bad fire hazard. <laughs> like, we would be trailing around dressed in silk, which is so flammable, you know, <laughs> and like playing around with matches and oil and cotton and like... Thankfully, houses in India aren't made of wood, but mm. like, uh, like in, but that's what we would do. So we would light it like around the uh, the gates of our house. We would put rows of lamps down the driveway. We would put it on the stairs leading up to the house, so on the our porch steps along our um, porch as well. And then we would put a lamp in each window. So you basically have your house as lit up as possible. And many families will actually get string lights, like a lot of them, and cover their houses in lights. Those look great, but my family was never into putting that sort of effort. Or <laughs> And it's really pretty because like what I like doing now that I mean, now that I'm not, I don't burst crackers anymore and that I'm not really into it is that I would usually go up to my terrace or to like, a window upstairs and just like watch the city like you know maybe after midnight or so when everyone had finally stopped bursting crackers and mm-hmm. gone to sleep and the haze kind of cleared a little bit and I just like watch all these lights twinkle and it, it just made me feel really nice 
All right, that's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We wish everyone a happy and safe Diwali. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. Or head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of the Times Union. It's produced and edited by me, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom. Special thanks this week to Casey Seiler and Shristi Matthew for their contribution to this episode. 